This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, today is a um, special day as we'll be preparing for the trip to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the great sage, author of the Zohar, the uh, Tana from the Mishnah. And today we're going to explain his life and uh, get involved a little bit in the festival that is coming upon us, um, where we will all make this pilgrimage to the north for the greatest party on earth. Something like a quarter of Israel's population will will descend upon his gravesite on, on, on the middle of the largest mountain in biblical Israel, which is Miron, to a majestic, uh, intense, extreme. Uh, 29, 30 hour celebration with live music in several different venues uh, every venue has a dance floor there are one dance floor alone holds 10,000 people and the band literally plays the crowd so the crowd at one point could be jumping like as high as they can all 10,000 as high as they can uh, next moment everyone's just in a dancing frenzy and it's uh, it's a very special day in the calendar, and you guys are lucky enough to have arrived in Israel to be here for this special occasion, and it is an unforgettable evening to be part of. So let's discuss its history, so that it will bring to us a lot of context when we are actually in the moment of the uh, holiday, which again is tomorrow night, Lagba Omer this year. Now it works like this. The, the this time is a mourning period. It's the counting of the Omer. Uh, we count forty nine days from the night after Passover. So you have Passover night, and then the next day um, we begin our count. Now we count forty nine, which is seven sevens, seven sets of sevens. And when we get to the 49th and we're through with the count, the following night is the 50th, and that's the culmination of the the seven sevens. There's a concept in Judaism when you count seven sevens, you hit that 50th, that 50th is the next level. So you'll hear often this concept of 49, and then the 50th is the highest. So... They also like the Jews were in the 49 levels of impurity in Egypt. Had they gone to the 50th, they would not have merited the promise of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to come back into the land. They would have lost their birthright for that promise. Uh, they also, at the, um, at the leaving of Egypt, they went shooting up to the 49th level of purity right before the 50th we know there's 50 uh, gates of understanding when you're growing in your own personal uh, awareness of the world around you as you grow you know in your understanding in your wisdom of the world there's 49 there's really 50 levels but they but the 50th level of understanding is actually number one of the next whole set so there's like they say there's 50 levels of understanding but it's really 49 because the 50th is the first of the next set of, of levels of understanding that are available. 
Anyway, so we count 49, the 50th day so holy, it doesn't even need a count, it's not counted, it's, it's counted amongst, uh, in and of itself. And the 33rd day of the Omer, uh, let me go back, the, the, this counting of the Omer is also an unfortunate time, it is when Rabbi Akiva's students, Rabbi Akiva the great rabbi, his students died during this time, there was a plague that was killing off Rabbi Akiva's students, and apparently the plague was as a result of them not honoring each other enough. There was not enough honor of student to student. Now, they died off in a plague. There's thousands, 24,000 students uh, died in that plague. And there were only a few left afterwards. One of those students was Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Now, on the 33rd day of the Omer, the students of Rebbe Kiva stopped dying. It was over. The plague was over. And therefore we celebrate that, that the dying was over of the, that. But also, it is the Yorzeit of his very special student, Rebbe Shimon Bar Yochai. So the Yorzeit means, it's Yiddish, Yor means year, and Zeit means time meaning the anniversary of the death. The Yord site of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai falls out on the 33rd day of the count of the Omer. That 33rd day happens to be the 5th day of the 5th week. So it's a double power of that day. So we're in the 5th week of the counting of the Omer, which is called Hod, which means to give thanks, Todah. And he passed away on the fifth day of the fifth week. So that's Hod Shebehod, giving thanks within giving thanks. And the concept of giving thanks is focusing in on the on your benefactor. When you're focused in on your benefactor, you're considered someone who is embodying that attribute. So if you were to give me a book. If you gave me this book, and I said thank you to Mordechai over here, I'd be out of hope, because Mordechai did not give me the book. You did. You are my the source of the book. So when I give thanks, I'm focused on my, as, as that I'm a recipient. And by the way, being a recipient is a passive mode. It's more feminine. It's not something that is the assertive masculine. So you have to understand that this particular attribute is a more receiving, more passive attribute. This attribute of giving thanks. It's something that comes easier to women, harder to men, to admit that there's someone who's given to you. That you have a benefactor. And of course, the Jewish people themselves are called Yehudim. Yehudi, or Jew for short. Or Yud in, uh, Yud in German, or Yid in Yiddish comes all from the word Yehudi and it comes from the word giving thanks because the whole point of the Jewish people is to recognize the source which is God so we are a very humble people recognizing the source in fact you'll notice that I have these uh, rather uh, intense side locks here and this is part of the, the look of a Jew it's, a, it's almost like a, like a goat or a sheep someone who sees God as his shepherd and he, he is not um, in this might makes right 
kind of Western uh, headspace. And you'll notice that my haircut is exactly the opposite of aggressive cultures. You'll notice that aggressive cultures shave here and leave the hair here. And I have the exact mirrored opposite here where I have shaved here and left here the, the hair. Aggressive cultures always shaved over these areas. You'll notice the Mohawk Indians are war, is a warrior tribe. In South America, the Yamamamo Indians are a warrior tribe. You might have seen them in National Geographic pictures. They, the South American Amazon Indians, Yamamamo, they have this like, uh, they shave all around, which is a prohibition in the Torah. And then they, uh, they have this like mushroom, very fine straight hair kind of mushrooms. Uh, you ever seen that in the National Geographic? Warriors! More warriors. It's the Viking haircut, it's the, the army haircut, it's the boxers, it's the, the rugby player, the football, all, every, all aggressive sports, they generally go with this, with this look. And you see that my haircut is the inversion of that. Now of course no one has to grow these things, these are, all you have to do is not shave this area. It's a negative commandment, there's no positive commandment there. It says do not shave this area, which means you can keep it trim, just not to go down to the skin. In this area, you have to keep a couple millimeters of hair over your jawbone and obviously above it. So, nice set of sideburns. You don't have to do the full Elvis Presley, but you feel if you feel your bone and you don't feel a couple millimeters of hair there, then you have shaved too high. You need to start growing out. You're going to have a little bit of a different look if you want to fulfill this commandment. But uh, you need to have ah, oh, perfect example. Please uh, angle in the camera over here. Can you? Uh, Look at those lamb chops over here, all the way down to here. He, he scored. Okay? So, you're in his pace and my pace. What's your name again? Adam. Adam's pace and my pace are, are both kosher pace. His, his are no more kosher than mine. We both have not shaved over that bone. We have fulfilled one of the 613 commandments by not shaving over that bone. Okay. But the, what I've done with my pace is I have, um, What's called beautifying a commandment, lahader, lahadar, mahader, lahader, mahadrin, is to beautify a commandment. Just like Hanukkah, all you have to do is light a candle. The fact that you might light a silver menorah is beautifying it. Kiddish. All you need to get a cup, pour some juice in it, some grit wine in it, and make kiddish. But to use nicer wine, to use a silver kiddish cup, it costs a hundred bucks. You're beautifying the commandment. You see what I'm talking about? You're taking a mitzvah that God gave you and you're busting it out like really saying, God, I'm, thank you with this. Another example, tefillin. You, you, a pair of tefillin, you could get a pair of tefillin probably for, you know, subsidization or you can get it for $250, but, but you can, uh, let's say you can get a pair of tefillin for 500 bucks. If your car's stereo is worth $1,500, Buy a pair of tefillin for $1,800. Don't spend more money on your stereo for your car <laughs> that you did for you and you know it. <laughs> but do it for, do, you're gonna buy something to serve God. Spend a little more money on, than you spend on your car stereo. And, and that's a mahadir for you. Another person spends 500 and he never buys nothing for 500 bucks. That's, that's over the top for him. He never spends that kind of money. In fact, he's going to have to borrow it or he's going to have to pay it off over five months, 100 bucks a month. For him, that's mahadrin. 
for that's you know for each person is different. But interesting, interestingly, here there's a negative commandment that I'm beautifying. It's kind of interesting. You know, you hear what I mean? It's a negative commandment that I'm beautifying, and perhaps maybe that's the reason why we beautify this commandment because it's getting away from the cultures that said might makes right. That we'll we'll kill and we'll talk about it later. Might makes right, but rather. Maybe that's the reason we're beautifying it is that we're really making a statement here that through wisdom and understanding, I can understand you. I can hear you before I state my point. I'm going to listen. I'm going to seek first to understand your side before I state mine. And I want, and these tell you what, what um, is a Jewish contribution to humanity is compromise means strength. I feel so confident in my position that I'm willing to even give. Compromise means strength. The rest of the world thinks we're crazy. You know, you know, to tell, tell Arabs the concept of land for peace, they love that concept. Land for peace. Yeah, that's great. See, we're saying we're so confident in our land, we're even willing to give you something. You can only give something that's yours. So since we're giving it, you know, and we're there, they are the quintessential might makes rights uh, society. They're, they embody it like it's like a thousand years ago where the whole world was might mixed right except for the Jews and they so every time we act Jewish and say compromise shows strength they of course are like we're glad you feel that way that's perfect <laughs> you just keep giving and we'll just keep taking but it's very dangerous for the psyche because it gives them a, uh, they can become overconfident the more compromise Israel does which is our deepest attribute of showing strength, the more compromise we do as a nation, uh, it starts bolstering their confidence to actually maybe wage a more serious uh, affront. Uh, it's very dangerous to give them too much. Now, back to our story. So on the 33rd day of the Omer, Rabbi Kiva's students stopped dying. It's kind of funny because Rabbi Shimon did die, but later. He died later. You know, he died of old age. He didn't die uh, by uh, plague nor by being killed by the Romans. Rather, he died on the day, 33rd day of the Omer. Now, here's a little story about his life to give you an idea of who he was. First of all, he was a great sage. He was one of the writers of the Mishnah. When you read Mishnah, and you'll see the name Rebbe Shimon Omer. Okay, it's not, they're not playing Simon Says here. You know, Shimon is Simon, Omer Says. Okay, when it says Rebbe Shimon Omer, Rabbi Simon Says, they're, they're not talking, they are, that is Rebbe Shimon Bar Yochai. That's Rebbe Shimon, the son of Yochai. Sometimes it states the son of Yochai, sometimes it doesn't, but whenever it doesn't, it also refers to him. That is him saying, that is Rabbi Shimon saying something. Now, so he's an author in the Mishnah. He's one of the people you'll see in conversation in the dialogues of the Mishnah, meaning the oral law. So he is like the basic, one of the founding, uh, sages of Jewish legal, uh, tradition of halakha. Now, there was a point where he had, um, been in a conversation with others and someone was kind of 
I don't know how you would say it. He was talking about how the Romans had done so much for Israeli infrastructure. You know, look at these highways. Look at these bath, beautiful bathhouses they built. Look at these buildings, this architecture. Haven't the Romans really been a great gift to Israel, the Jewish people? Oh my gosh, very nice. They said, what have the Romans done for us? Yeah. Perfect. Is that what you were smiling about? That's so funny. That's exactly what happened. It must be based This conversation, yeah, it must be. So this conversation, I don't know if there are any Jewish writers from Monty Python, but, but anyway, they were, they were saying, isn't it wonderful what they've done? At which point Rabbi Shimon said that everything they've done was only for themselves. They didn't do any of this for us. You know, Jewish slaves built most of this stuff. This wasn't for us. This stuff they did was for them. And I prefer to have our old bumpy roads and our old broken down mikvahs, you know, the bathhouse. And I'd rather have our broken down buildings built with regular Jewish labor, that's paid Jewish labor, than not all this Roman architecture everywhere. I'm not interested in our, uh, in our new hosts, the Romans. Now, word got out to the Romans that this Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was an insurgent. He was someone who was creating insurgents against the Roman Empire, and word came out back to the Jews that the Romans have declared that he must be killed. And now they're coming up to kill Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Rabbi Shimon decides that it's that he's got to hide, and so he takes off with his son Rabbi Lazar, who's also a great sage of the Mishnahic times, and the two of them head off and into the mountains, into the wilderness, until they came upon a cave, and they basically moved into that cave for the next uh, twelve years. To be exact, they moved into that cave for 12 years. So it was pretty major. Now, don't forget, back then, this is when the oral law was still oral. So they know all of Torah. Meaning they have no problem studying the oral law for this uh, entire 12 years. I mean, all they were doing anyway was studying. It's just now they're studying in hiding. So they were hiding out in this cave. And by the way, they had nowhere to I mean they didn't have a change of clothing they went with the the clothes they had on their backs right then they also went you know what are they going to eat what are they going to drink so the tradition has it that the that a spring sprung up outside the cave which is you know basically the water table just shot up right there and they had a little spring right there and they also had a carob tree that sprouted there. Carob's like one of the major trees in the north. That's, but the carob tree sprouted up, and I think it even blocked the cave itself, so no one could see it. So they ate carob and drank spring water for those 12 years, in case you're wondering what they ate and drank. And but the question is, what they do for clothing? You know, you can't wear a pair of clothing every day for 12 years. So you know what they used to do? It was amazing. They they would remove their clothes for the days of the week they would bury themselves with sand inside the cave and they would learn their Torah because you can't learn Torah naked they would learn Torah buried in sand 
And that's how they spent their week. Buried in sand, up to their necks. Can you imagine coming upon that cave? <laughs> you, know, you just see two heads on the ground, you know, talking Torah, you know. Oh, we're, don't mind us, you know, we're just uh, learning a little Torah here. <laughs> Whoa. So then um, on um, Fridays, they would wash off, and they would put on their clothes for Shabbos. And they'd wear the clothes all Shabbos. And then they, after Shabbos, they would take off their clothes, and they would uh, go back into the sand. Why not just wear clothes for 12 years? What's that? Why not just wear clothes? Because then they wouldn't have Shabbos clothes. Shabbos clothes are very important. Your finest. So if you, if you only have one set of clothes, so you have to be naked during the week. So don't try that at home. If you live in a cave. If you live in a cave. And you have a lot of sand. So anyway, after 12 years, Elijah the prophet shows up outside the cave and says to them, gentlemen, I have good news for you. The Roman decree is over. They no longer are after you. You can come out of the cave. Now, these two have been learning Torah nonstop for 12 years. They are on fire. In fact, everything they're looking at is catching on fire. And they are blazing fire, these two. They walk out of the cave, and the birds that were flying over your head were burning up. You know, like Mount Sinai had a fire. So they called Rebbe Shimon, they called him Sinai. They called him Sinai. So everything that was go, flying over his head was burning up. The, he, he was literally, they were setting ablaze everything. They were, and you probably had this experience before. Have you ever had like a great moment of clarity, a total epiphany in your life, and then you walk into like normal society and you see like, you're like towering over like the average guy on the street because of the clarity you're walking around with? That's a kind of fire. And you could easily burn your family when you get home. And, you know, your family is, like, talking about mundane things when you've realized the truth of the universe, you know. You could easily burn them with such things. And people come back from Israel usually pretty on fire, and the people don't know what to do with them, you know, when they show up so inspired. But this is like times a million. You know, that's how on fire they were. Question? You want to get this question over here? Yeah. On Mount Sinai there was Eshat Torah. On Mount Sinai there was there was the fire of Torah, yeah. And the fire was not consuming the mountain. On, on the you're saying the bush? The bush. Oh, the burning bush. That was also on Mount Sinai. Yeah. yeah. So. If Rabbi... Oh, we're talking about the fire of Sinai, not the fire of the burning bush. Uh, it's not the same. Not the same. No, different fire. Although I don't think the Mount Sinai was consumed by the flames. I think the mountain remained the mountain. Might have been a little charred. <laughs> Might have been a little singed at the top, you know. <laughs> you know I, don't, I don't know how the fire affected the mountain itself. But yeah, we're talking about a different fire. Now... So they're walking out of the cave and they're on their way out and they find a man who is farming. You know, just some man working the field. And like I was saying before, they saw this guy, like we might be when you get back from Israel. You see this, he sees this guy working the field and they say to each other, Rabbi Shimon and his son, Rabbi Elazar, look at each other and they're like, 
what kind of loser would like be doing physical work in this world when he could be working for the next world, learning Torah? And the guy looks up from his stuff, from his you know his labor on the soil. He looks up, and the guy poofs in the smoke. Burns. They burn the guy. And they're both looking at each other like, whoa, we better tone it down a bit. When a voice came from heaven, there was a voice from heaven that said, this is what you do with my world? You're going to burn everybody up with your fire? Back in that cave. And they sent them back into the cave. They were sent back into the cave. And back in that cave, they stayed another year. Only this year was to work out not only all the Torah they had learned, you know, that they would be learning that year, but also how to re-enter, you know, like the space shuttle re-entry, how to re-enter society in a way that you're water and not fire. You can, you can keep your fire burning without burning anybody else. We have another story of this in the Torah of uh, Moses. Uh, he came down from Mount Sinai glowing and it was freaking out the, uh, Jews. And the Israelites were flipping out over this glowing Moses. It was scaring them. So he would actually wear a mask when he would speak to the people so that they could, you know, deal with him. It's a lesson for all of us is when you get clarity in life, don't burn your family in the process. You know, remain water with them while your fire burns inside. And translate the fire inside yourself to beautiful dealings. Deal beautifully with people, even though you're on fire. You get these people yelling Shabbos at cars in Jerusalem on fire. You know, they're on fire. You think I'm any less on fire about Shabbos, Shabbos than the people screaming at the cars? I translate it differently. I say, I found a guy uh, pruning the hedges uh, this Shabbos. Now, I could have gone up to him going, Shabbos! Shabbos! You know, which would have been really effective with this Israeli guy pruning the hedges of many small villages. And he was just pruning the hedge of our small village. Anyway, but I walked up to him kindly... I realize, you know, you want to prune your hedges and it's something that's very important for the hedges, but maybe not on the Shabbat when it might be affecting the sensitivities of others who are celebrating Shabbat. He said something like, I'll go prune somewhere else then. Who knows? Who knows what drugs this guy was on? All of a sudden, I must prune hedges, you know, in a crazy neighborhood. Anyway, back to Rebbe Shim. So they're in the cave for another year. Now, during those years, they weren't just involved in Jewish law. They were studying the Kabbalah, which is a tra- which is a tradition that goes all the way back to Adam, who, before he ate from the fruit, obviously could see right through everything. You know, he was able to see the secrets of creation right before his very eyes, as it says that he was able to name the essence of all things. The Hebrew names for things is the, the actual essence of that thing. And Adam was able to actually see all that stuff, at least before he ate from the fruit. 
Abraham was a great Kabbalist. In fact, we have a book from Abraham called Sefer Yetzirah, the Book of Formation, which is a Kabbalistic book about how the world was created. We have that book in hand today. Um, but the tradition really was uh, brought down deeply at Sinai to the Jewish people and passed down orally for over a thousand years. And only with the Romans, may their name be uh, wiped out in their memory as well, uh, only with them did the, did the Kabbalah get written down in detail. And that was written down by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, I also I read also on the day of uh, the the day that he like I must have completed it was also Lag Omer, the thirty third. By the way, the word Lag is Lamed Gimel Lag. Lamed is the number thirty in Hebrew, and Gimel is three, right? Alephet Gimel thirty three. Lag means the thirty third day of the Omer. Clear? Now. He wrote down, just like the Mishnah, which is oral law, it wasn't supposed to be written down. It was written down because of Roman persecution. So to the Zohar, which is the book of radiance, the book of light, the book of Kabbalah, it was also written down, very encoded, very cryptic, only for those who understand how to learn it properly. It's a, it's a book that's not a, it's not, it's not an easy read, let's say. It's, it's very cryptic, written in Aramaic, and it's all just the coding of the secrets behind everything in creation, including all the commandments, all the stories of the Torah, and, and uh, the actual building blocks of the creation itself, afterlife, reincarnation, all the mysticism. It's like the eastern side of Judaism, if you will. You know, Judaism's got like its western side, which is more ritual side, and it's got its eastern side, the more mystical side. Together you get spiritual, spirit and ritual, spiritual. So, Rabbi Shimon was both. In fact, back then, if you wanted a spiritual person or you wanted a legalistic person, they were the same guy. Today, if you want to learn Jewish law, you go to one rabbi, you want to learn mysticism, you go to another. In those days, they were the same exact people. And that's who Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was. Now, spiritually, we have a tradition about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that he was the sum total of all the Jewish souls. There are 600,000 root souls of the Jewish people, meaning at Sinai, there were 600,000 root souls there. All the other people at Sinai, because there were 3 million altogether, the other 2,400,000 were branch souls of those 600,000 root souls. Now, there are certain great, great, great sages that embodied more than one root soul. There could have been a sage that was a thousand root souls, a hundred thousand root souls. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was all 600,000 root souls wrapped up into one human being. That's how powerful Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was. He, therefore, is you, and you are him. Meaning, if there's one rabbi in Jewish history that you would connect with more than any other, it would be Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, because your soul automatically is within his soul. Now, of course, any one of this root soul, let's say your root soul number 
uh, by the way, Moses had that as well. Moses was also, his soul was one of these general souls of all of Israel. He was one of those root souls. One sec. So let's say root soul 100,365. Let's say you're part of that root soul. So everyone who's walking around the planet who's from that root soul, you would very much connect with that person. If you've ever really connected with somebody, it's probably because they share your root soul. And who you'll marry, those who aren't married, the person who you'll marry will probably be your root soul as well. You'll marry someone who's of your root soul. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was the sum total of all root souls. So when you celebrate his yard site, the anniversary of his death, you're really celebrating not only the anniversary of his death, but it's the death of all, every one of your ancestors, whose dates you don't even know what day to light the candle. You know, we have part, one of the ways you celebrate a yard site is you light a yard site candle, a 24 hour candle. So you'll notice that what people light on Lagba Umar is bonfires instead of one candle because we're talking about the souls of all of Israel. So instead of one wick, you need more like a couple thousand logs. And they, these giant fires are the, represent the Yortzite candle. They are this giant Yortzite candle for all the souls of Israel. It's like going to your own Yortzite. When you go to Rabbi Shimon's grave on Lag Moimer, it's like going to your own yard site. It's a very spiritual day. He's also the one who redacted one of the, the uh, you know, all the writings, meaning all the tradition of Kabbalah, on reincarnation. So anyway, people don't die. And for that reason, meaning when people die, they don't die, their body dies. The soul keeps going. You keep moving. And for that reason, he... he uh, commanded that everyone must celebrate on the day of his death. He asked that people should celebrate on the day of his death. With uh, food and drink and dancing and music. And in fact, ever since he passed away, 2,000 years ago, people have been making this pilgrimage to Rabbi Shimon. And I, there are still people today you could meet. They have long white beards who remember when they were little kids, two weeks before Lag Bomer, they were put on donkeys, and their families would actually make their way from Jerusalem for two weeks. They would travel via donkey with the whole family and make their way camping out for two weeks up to Miron to go to the grave of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. All the more so today, now that we have airplanes to fly into Israel and buses to bus you up there. No one has any excuse not to go to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's grave on his yard site. But the, uh, it's gotten a little easier now than two weeks going up and then two weeks coming back. But this pilgrimage has been happening all along. As long as there have been Jews in Israel, this pilgrimage has been taking place. And it's been getting bigger and bigger each year. And now it is, we're in 2009 now, it's gotten to, they're not sure how many exactly, because it's a little hard to count, but it's, uh, it's they say three quarters of a million people, close to a million people uh, are coming. This year might be a million people because it's not hitting Shabbos. When it hits, if it's on a Friday or a Sunday, meaning after Shabbos, a little more 
gets a little more difficult. Uh, so some people opt out. But when it's in the middle of the week like it is this week, it's on a Monday night, it's, uh, you know, you know a lot, anyone who's even thinking of going will be there. Um, also, the reason it keeps getting bigger and bigger is once you've gone once and you broke through the experience, you got it, there's a point where you get it. And you get it when you stop trying to get it. It's one of those things that you only get when you stop trying to get it. You know, people are always busy trying to get things. They're, they're the, the intellectual analytical types who are usually miserable beings anyway because they're usually analyzing themselves half the time. But they, uh, which can never be fun. It, constantly analyzing yourself. I mean, it's okay when you're in a good mood, but what kind of self-analysis are you going to make when you're in a bad mood about, about yourself? Could be pretty dastardly. Anyway, but the analytical types don't get Lagbomer. In fact, they don't even go to Lagbomer. But the, and so the problem is, I, I, I know a per- certain Jew that flew here. He came to my third meal this week. He's a very analytical Jew. And there he was at my table with his special, you know, very squared off structure style glasses, his tie just right, and, and his trimmed beard, everything is, you know, very structured, and, and analytical people are very structured people versus flow people, we're more diffuse thinkers, so philosophical thinkers, so the, anyway, he was like, my father-in-law is Hasidic, and he's taking me to this event in Miron, I don't know what to do, I, I'm so nervous, and I can't figure out why we should even be going there, and and I said, you know what, I'll give you the answer, when you get there, you must start dancing, and you just keep dancing, and dancing and dancing, and I, and I looked at him carefully, and I did a little equation, between the third and fourth hour, something's going to click for you, and you're going to get it. You won't be able to explain. He said, get what? I said, you won't be able to explain it. If you could explain it, you didn't get it. (laughs) Something clicks, and you got it. And once you get it, you got it, and your life is never the same again. Life is never the same again. You can have a transformation. At this experience, that's inexplicable. You can't really explain it, but you know that everything is one. You were one with the people around you, the sky above, the earth below, the band playing the song. Certainly Rebbe Shimon Bar Yochai has now fused with your soul in a very deep way. You know, you're now in love with Rebbe Shimon like the rest of, you know, Am Yisrael. And, but something clicks. And it's not an intellectual click, it's not an analytical click, it's just, you got it. And so the way to get it is to go into the event fully, leave your mind behind in a way, leave your mind behind, and just go into the Rebbe Shimon mode of dancing and singing and celebrating, and after enough hours of that, it'll click, and when it clicks, the next thing you'll notice is the sky is starting to get light, because you will stop noticing anything for a while, for many hours. Last year... The people I introduced it to um, danced for eight hours straight. Eight hours straight. People started. Once dawn comes, the music stops, and we all kind of met back up. Um, this year we'll be meeting back up. Uh, we're starting at uh, for Mari the evening service, and uh, I'll give some words of uh, approach how to approach the night, and then we will do our own bonfire there uh, with music, live music. Um, that'll be 
at 8 o'clock. We're going to do that at the grave of Rabbi Yochanan Hassanler. You should write that down if you don't, didn't write it already. Rabbi Yochanan Hassanler. Um, also, leaving Jerusalem for the, leaving Jerusalem for the pilgrimage is going to be at 2.30 at the Cardo, which is the Roman pillars uh, over here, the Roman pillars, the Cardo, and then walking out to the street called Malche Israel, right down Malche Israel, walking out to the street Malche Israel, where the buses will be leaving every 10 minutes. And uh, it's a little pushy getting on the buses because everyone's freaked out, even though it's ridiculous to be pushing at that time of day. Because there's it's way more buses than there are people. And the anyway, but uh, try to get on the bus together. And the, what's that? Two thirty. And um, and leave your body behind. Meaning, when you get on the bus, just leave your body behind. Go up with your soul, because there's no room up there for any more bodies. Rabbi Shimon was about the spiritual, what's behind things. And just bring your soul. That's what's really going on. And then when someone steps on your foot, make sure you have closed shoes, no sandals, high tops are very good. Um, you want, you, you're definitely going to have your feet stepped on various times. Um, but you should, when you leave your body here and you bring your only your soul, whoever steps on your foot is you anyway. So yeah, can you imagine stepping on your own foot and elbowing yourself? You know, it's it's all you anyway up there. No food, no drink. If you want a snack on the bus or something, but you don't need any food, you don't need any drink. It's all provided and it's all free. All the restaurants there, there will be restaurants and tents. All the food is free and uh, all drinks are free for sure. If anything, you might want to bring some booze to share with someone else. You want to drink, uh, share booze with another person. Otherwise, you can... Um, drink other people's booze. Um, no one sleeps that night. You dance all night. The next day, you're wiped out. Sunrise, you go to one of those restaurants, have some breakfast, and then uh, move on, move on out to back to Jerusalem. Or stay. I'm staying. I'm staying two nights. If you want to hike from Safat, If you hike from Safat, you need lots of water. You do not want to get caught down there without water. And also, do it in a way you don't waste too much energy because you're going to be dancing all night long. So it's kind of a strange day to be hiking from spot, but it's kind of a nice way to do it because that's what the spot Kabbalists used to do. They used to walk. They did it a few days earlier, and then they would stay at Rebbe Shimon until it was your site. But, the, uh, but to hike from spot is a very traditional Kabbalistic thing to do, and it also prepares you spiritually during the whole couple-hour hike to get to Rebbe Shimon. But you will need every bit of strength you have to dance the entire night. But you're young and you're young and dumb. Go for it, you know. So, so definitely do it. So, yeah. Um, if you leave tomorrow afternoon, the bus will take three hours to get there with a rest stop. If you leave later, there are no promises because you and all the country is going to be are going to be going all at the same time. So earlier the better. But yeah, if you want to hike from Svat, yeah, take a bus to Svat. All those buses are going to go to Miran. You want a bus to Svat, and um, and then you will you call information for that. Um, what else? Yeah. So if you leave later, it could be four to six hours on the bus to to get there, just because of all the other people coming at the same time. Um, the the uh, we're going to be meeting by the way at sunrise again for a prayer service. 
uh, at Yochanan Asandler, at the same grave, which is right above Rabbi Shimon, right above his grave. What's that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Never give it time. Uh, I have no idea. Sunrise, it's probably five. Uh, it's probably six, so prayers will probably start around 5.30. Music will probably stop around quarter to 5.05. Five. Bring it to fill in. Yeah, you'll stash it while, during the dancing, you stash, everything will be stashed. There's also official stash spots where people have donated their entire log bomber to watching bags and stuff, but you, you don't need those. You can just stash it. Someone's, ask someone if you can stash it in their tent or something. Um, okay, I think we covered log bomber pretty well. Um, if you're even considering not going to Rabbi Shimon for his yort site, you should just stop thinking now. Forget the yort site. Stop thinking now and make sure you get to his yort site and be there. And I don't care what emotional state you're in or whatever. Forget it. Just stop thinking. Get up there and party with Am Yisrael. The only money you need is if you're not hitching. I don't suggest hitching there. You can hitch back. Only money. So if you're a hitchhiker and want to save money, don't buy a round trip bus ticket. But the anyway, the only money you need really is for that bus. Should be somewhere between thirty and fifty. Check out. I don't remember. And that's all you need. And if you need money, I'll give you money for that too. Okay. And uh, happy log bomber, everybody. I'll be back on Thursday for the next class. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.